The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Isaiah's last chapter opens with these words, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. We have 13 weeks. It won't be 13 consecutive weeks due to my own schedule, but 13 weeks that I want to devote to learning more how to understand and apply the initial three-fourths of this book. 75.5% of our Bible is Old Testament. It was the only Bible that Jesus had. He never had Romans. He never had to read Revelation. He had Genesis through Malachi. And his Bible, same books as ours, ended with Chronicles. Genesis through Chronicles. And the Lord provided Dr. Andy Nacelli and I an opportunity many years back to prepare a course, uh, two courses, and both of them, in the end, because the nature of the course was video-based, and they wouldn't even let me take a Bible with me up front in front of the camera. So I couldn't, only have, I couldn't have a Bible, I couldn't have notes, so I had to write everything out, and it was all through one of those cool teleprompters like the president uses. And so I had to have everything there, and in the process, I didn't set out to write a book, but, um, but it happened. And so... Um, Mine is how to understand and apply the Old Testament. It's a little thicker because I've got more Bible. Um, Andy's got how to understand and apply the New Testament. And I thought it might be useful um, following just now that we've finished Isaiah for two and a half years to enter into just a very practical overview in how to study the Bible. And so... This book is called How to Understand and Apply the Old Testament, 12 Steps from Exegesis to Theology. And there's an introduction, and then each of the 12 steps gets one chapter. Now, some of these chapters are 90 pages long, but I'm going to attempt to summarize even the 90 pages in, our, in, in one week. Okay, So we're just going to walk through, and I'm going to give one week to the introduction today, and then 12 more weeks to each of the 12 chapters in this book. Now, a big book like this can be a little scary, especially if you open it up and see Hebrew. Okay? Now, one of the things that I felt it was a kindness from God, he gave me the idea that in one book, and I intended to put these little graphics up on my screen, but I totally forgot. Um, in one book, I... I would try to write it kind of as a choose-your-own-adventure book. So there's three different tracks that you could take. If you happen to have had Hebrew, like Brother Chris Tachik, then this whole book is for him. But that's the challenging rock climber image, okay? Now, I also have an easy hiker and a moderate hiker uh, journey. And so the easy hiker 
is simply for everyone, including a Chris Tachik. It's for everyone, and yet if you take that path, you will, you will almost never see any Hebrew. Then the moderate hiker path is also for everyone. So if you were reading the book according to this, this path, you would take all the easy hiker trails and you would take the moderate hiker trails. Um, but this, this is for everyone, and yet it will let you see a little bit of Hebrew and hopefully grasp why we can celebrate that God raises up men and women in every generation who can study their Bibles in the original languages. And also to just give you a little glimpse as to what benefit there actually is in, in learning the biblical languages, even a little bit. Um, so easy, moderate, challenging, and most of the next 12 weeks, we're just going to take the easy path. And I'm just going to overview the big picture. Most of this book is the easy path, most of it. But we will see that up front, when we're trying to establish the text and looking at grammar, there, there is a little bit more Hebrew in here. Because I, I wrote it for you and my wife, and I wrote it for my seminary students, in, all in one book. So don't be scared off if you see Hebrew. You can jump to the section that doesn't have it. You just walk through the book, and all your, the whole book, every section has one of these three pictures in it, so you just, oh, keep going, keep going until you find your, your, uh, the adventure you've chosen to walk on. Okay, So how to understand and apply the Old Testament, that is where we're headed. To that end, let's pray. Father in heaven, you have said that you will look upon those who tremble at your word. O God, you oppose the proud, but you give strength to the humble. We admit here at the front end of this new series that we are needy, and you're a God who has spoken in a way that we can understand. So I ask that you would show up, that you would speak, that you would equip that you would mobilize in these 13 weeks. Teaching people who may often read for distance, teaching them how to better read for depth. And we need both. We know that raking can clean a yard, but we know that digging alone lets us find diamonds. So I ask that you would help us learn more how to be good diggers and how to be good rakers. Thank you that you are so faithful to speak through your book. We need to hear and you've promised to give those who are in Christ ears to hear. So let us hear. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. All right. The introduction. It's about a journey of discovery and encounter. Discovery of what God says, an encounter with the very living God who has spoken to us through his word. So this morning, we're tackling two areas here. 
What exactly is the interpretive task? What do we mean by exegesis and theology? And then, what is the interpretive task? What are the 12 steps? That's my goal for this morning. So, one of the verses that has walked with me since very early in my years of seminary is Ezra 7.10. The good hand of God was upon Ezra because he set his heart to study and to practice the Torah of Yahweh and to teach both statute and rule in Israel. ESV, the good hand of his God was on him for Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Study, practice, teach. Now, if we get those out of order, we're going to end up in problems. We've got lots of people in this world who seek to teach without having studied or who seek to practice without having actual grounding in what God says. You also have those who actually put in the time to study, but then they jump right away and they start to teach, and and they haven't let it affect them. They haven't let it reshape them. We got problems? All right. If you've hung around Pastor John Piper, you've heard him talk about six habits of heart and mind that make up the education process. And the six habits are these. As we enter into study, it could be the Word or it could be the world, we want to observe carefully what is there. Once we've observed carefully, we want to evaluate fairly what we've observed. Sorry. Observe carefully. Understand rightly. That's the second one. Understand rightly. We want to understand what we've observed. And then we're in a position to actually evaluate fairly. That is the process of study. Observe carefully, understand rightly, evaluate fairly. And that moves us so that we can feel appropriately. We're in a church that celebrates affections. We want to we taste and see that God is good. We want our senses awakened to His beauty. We want to hear things that are wonderful, too lofty for us to grasp. We want to encounter glory. We want to feel appropriately about what we've observed, understood, and evaluated. And then after we've felt, we want to act. Act appropriately in accordance with what we've felt. And only then are we in a position to express. So feeling and acting are about doing, and expressing is about teaching. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord. That was his Bible. We've got more Bible than just the law. 
Ezra had the law, and he set his heart. He, he determined, this is the kind of man I'm going to be. A man of the book, who studies, who practices, who teaches in that order. And I've just, very early, I just pleaded with God, let me be that kind of a man. And if you put me in a position of serving as a professor, or of a, in a, a position of a Sunday school teacher, let me be a kind of a man who helps produce those kind of people. So that's what this book is seeking to do. That's what our week, weeks ahead are seeking to do. So the interpretive task. We're talking about biblical interpretation. How to understand and apply, in this instance, the Old Testament. There's two different um, spheres that we want to be able to grasp, and those are exegesis and theology. Twelve steps from exegesis to theology. So I want us to get our hands around first this word exegesis. It's from two Greek words, ex meaning out of, and ago meaning to lead or to bring. So to bring out, that is, we enter into this book in order to bring out what is there. We want to understand the intention of the biblical authors. We don't want to, as much as possible, allow our own desires and dispositions to force something into the text that's not there. That would be called eisegesis, to bring into the text. Rather, we want to bring out of the text and do our best job as possible to simply discover what the biblical authors, and ultimately the biblical author who's controlling everything, one personal being from Genesis to Revelation speaking to us through 1,500 years of written word through multiple genres, laws, prophecies, songs, prayers, parables, jokes. There's jokes in the Bible. Maybe we'll see some. So we want to we encounter what God has said. That's what matters to us. And then, well, this is why, because it is God. It's men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, encountering this God who's spoken, and then shaping theology. Theos, God. Lagos, you know it as word. But also it means a reckoning or an accounting. So reckoning or accounting or reasoning about God. That's what theology is. So God's spoken to us. We want to understand what he has said. And then we want to shape our understanding of him. We want to shape a worldview that's fully influenced by him. Theology. And so these two areas of exegesis and theology shape up all 12 chapters of this book. Exegesis, the first nine, and then theology, the last three. So with exegesis, we're going to be looking at things like genre, text, looking at those little footnotes that send us down to the bottom of the page that say 
some of the earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't include this verse. Or the Dead Sea Scrolls actually tell us this. Text, grammar. The class will be half the size that week. But I I encourage you to come. Grammar. That God actually speaks in ways that we understand. And if grammar breaks down, communication falls apart. Why do, we, why do we have our children learn grammar? Not simply so they can communicate, but so that they can receive the communication that's been given to us. There is no greater reason on the planet to learn how to read than that you can actually encounter the words that God's given us. Structure. Arcing. And it's tricky Some of you have heard that language of arcing. Actually, creating arcs and in each arc establishing a relationship between every given proposition within a passage. So that you can actually track the flow of thought and understand that we've got to know that therefore is there for a reason. Or that because was purposed by this author and and wrestle with, in what way is that providing the basis of the ground for another statement? Structure, understanding how all the parts fit together to communicate one main idea. Words. Texts are built on words, and we want to make sure we understand what they mean. And along with words, context. Like, where does it fit in time, and why does that matter? And where does it fit in the book, and why does that matter? What came before? What came after? That's exegesis. But then we begin to put things together. We begin to build connections, and we begin to enter into the realm of theology. Meaning and application. Biblical theology is how God's Word interconnects progresses and integrates to climax in Christ. We want to understand systematic theology, how our passage contributes to key belief topics, doctrines that we hold to. And then it moves us into practical theology, just what's the Christian to do with this text? We're supposed to encounter God to what end? Exegesis and theology. This is the interpretive task. And all 12 chapters are going to fall into these Groupings. Now, I've listed on your paper four foundational presuppositions that I think are absolutely imperative for us to actually get out of this book what God intends for us to get out of this book. Number one, when I, when I even enter in to study the scriptures, I am I'm entering in with a, a conviction from the very beginning That this scripture is God's word. That it's unlike anything else. There are great works of literature. This last semester, my second oldest daughter read the Odyssey. I... I'm trying to think. I mean, I'm just always reading to my kids, but a book that you would know. Um, My... My oldest son, um, under the guidance of his teacher, who's in this room, and it's not my wife, he had to read 
some, I think he had to read, I think he did, I think he had to read some Shakespeare. Did he have to read Shakespeare? Last year, okay, it was last year. So, great works of literature, but they are not God's word. There is something organic in this book that sets it apart from every other literature and that actually guides how we approach it. That, that yes, we wrestle with it intensely. We consider words and structures because that's how God communicated it. And that's how we look at other literature as well. But there's, there's something distinctive about this book that demands that we listen and that we get it right. That it actually matters because God's spoken to us. The Old Testament is the Word of God. Here's Isaiah chapter 8. Should not people inquire of God? What does God think? What does God say? And Isaiah's answer isn't, just go and pray about it. No, he says, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word. That's what he calls it. If they will not speak in accordance with the word, inquire of God in his word. If they won't speak in accordance with that, They have no dawn. They're living in the darkness. Old Testament. Mark chapter 7. Jesus simply says, You make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Talking to the Pharisees. You say you're people of Moses? I tell you, you make void, not just Moses' word, the word of God by the way you treat that book. Mark 12, 36, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Psalm chapter 2. These aren't just the words of David. He spoke in the Holy Spirit. These are the very words of the living God. That's how Jesus viewed the Old Testament. How about the New Testament? Here's Paul, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. As Paul is speaking, as Paul is writing, the very Spirit of God is on the move with every letter, every intonation, every accent. Jesus would say, down to the very jot and tittle, I have come to fulfill the law. The jots... And the tittles, the little iota, the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, the little jot, the the smallest little hook on a Hebrew letter. That's what Jesus came to fulfill. Everyone matters, taught by the Spirit. Not just concepts given to us in the book coming from God, but the very words themselves coming from God. Everyone mattering. Everyone counting and distinguishing this book from every other. Here's Paul. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or a spiritual, he should acknowledge that what I'm telling you, what I'm writing to you is, what? A command of the Lord. That's how he viewed his own speech. I'm merely a channel, Paul says. What's coming from me is the command of God. And that's why people who just push off this book. It's not just it's not just any light matter. The God, like Pastor Jason said this morning, who created the universe has spoken. 
And we're part of that created world who are therefore responsible to heed what the king of the universe has said. Old Testament, New Testament, how about all of Scripture is God-breathed? All of it. And He's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Even the Old Testament, you can correct people from the Old Testament because it's all Scripture. Useful. Teaching. Rebuking. All Scripture. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how we are to understand this text. It is the very Word of God. It's the first foundational principle that guides me as I enter into this book. When I started seminary, feels like so long ago, 24 years ago, I have students now that weren't born when I got married. That's, that's crazy. So, that was 25 years ago. So, I'm in seminary 24 years ago, and there were so many things that I'd grown up learning about, and yet I didn't really know why. I knew what, but I didn't know why. Things on certain spectrums like, why is it that... God says a man and a woman that sex was created for marriage and that it shouldn't be something outside of marriage. Stuff like that. And then other things like the millennium. And I didn't even really know the possibilities. If you would have pushed me, I would have said, well, I know there's a millennium, but I'm kind of more like a pan-millennialist. It'll just all work out in the end. The relationship of men and women. How big is your God? Things that I I just, I knew people were wrestling with and I didn't have answers for. But this, I was, so so when I started seminary, there were so many things that I, I was like, you know, I just want the word of God to conform me. I'm willing to call into question things that my parents taught me if God's word seems to be leading me elsewhere. But what was key is that this, this is what, what I never did. And I am so glad that I didn't because I had so many peers who did. I never questioned that this was God's book and that that bore implications about its nature and about its truth claims. I was convinced that if this was God's word, that there were certain implications Number one, that Scripture is infallible in matters of faith and practice. Infallibility means it's sure, it's safe as a guide. Like we can trust what this book says. If we can actually figure out what it says, then we're on sure footing. Because it's coming from God. And through Christ, God is for us, not against us. He's not looking to give us bad things. He's wanting to see our joy be massively filled. So so we can be confident. This This is a conviction that I was never willing to let go. That Scripture, with respect to faith and practice, is an infallible guide. And then also, with respect to facts... 
Scripture is inerrant. So you've heard those two words, infallible, inerrant. Inerrant means it's entirely true and trustworthy. Entirely. In relation to what the author actually really intended. So, for example, when we get into the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we learn that there was a man who was going up from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he fell among thieves, and he got beat up, and then three guys walked by, and the third was the Samaritan who saved him and took him to the inn, and, and they put bandages and oil on him and cleaned up his wounds, and then he said, I'll pay anything that it takes to make sure this man gets well, and you're the listener to this story, and you, you start to ask, well, what was his name? How old was the man? Is he a relative? And Jesus would say, do you not understand what I'm talking about? Parables are parables. I wasn't talking about a specific man. I was talking about a truth that I'm trying to communicate through a story that I'm actually making up on the spot that that you can actually envision and relate to. That's how a parable works. But if we don't understand the genre right, we're going to be in trouble. So that's what I mean. It's true and accurate with respect to all that the original author intends. So if we learn that the sun rises on the evil and on the good... And we push that to say, the biblical authors believe the sun rose. Didn't the sun rise this morning? Aren't you willing to use that kind of language? It's called phenomenological language. The phenomenon happens, and this is how we perceive it. And yet, scientifically, we know that the sun is a fixed object in the universe, and it's the earth that's actually revolving around the sun. It's the earth that's rotating. The sun didn't rise, and yet within language, we have that freedom to use it. And I believe the biblical authors fully understood that. And so, when we say it's inerrant, we're talking about in accordance with the intention of the authors. And yet, with respect to facts, history, Geography, chronology, I think the nature of this book demands that God gets it right. And so I entered into my task as a a young seminary student, having so many different beliefs that I was ready to be shaped by, and yet I was convinced of this, that I couldn't arrive at the author's intent if I didn't have the original author's conviction. That is... The biblical authors knew what they were writing. What did Paul say? I'm speaking to you the very command of the Lord. And so, if I try to understand Paul without approaching his word with the same belief about his word that he had, I'll never arrive where he ended up. I'll never arrive where he ended up. I have to approach Scripture with the same presuppositions that the biblical authors themselves had. This is God's word. Infallible with respect to faith and practice, inerrant with respect to the facts. This is why we read things like this. God's words are pure. Psalm 12.6 They are trustworthy. Psalm 119.42 They are true. Psalm 119.160 They are right. 
Psalm 119, 172. And they cannot be broken. That was Jesus' conviction about his Old Testament. Even the smallest claims, Jesus declares, cannot be broken. That's a high view of this book. And I want us from the beginning to know that when we're thinking about interpreting Scripture and wanting to learn how to do it, the nature of the book demands a perspective about the task that is different than the task of interpreting any other book. Number two, I think we have to have a conviction from the get-go that what actually is said in this book can be known. We're moving, like in the 90s, in the 2000s, it was a one of the key terms on the table was postmodernism. And the challenge of knowability. And is there any absolute truth? And I, I remember having so many conversations with students who were wrestling with such matters. But this I know. Scripture itself assumes that we can know. Lynn? Yes. Oh, Philip, do you not know me? Do you not know me? If you knew me, you would recognize that you know the Father. I'm doing the very things that He calls me to. That's right. Beautiful. The truth from the Father. Let's consider how Scripture talks here. Here's Peter. The first statement, I remember sitting across the table with a fellow professor who was wrestling and saying, we cannot push our students, we cannot push our students to to think they can be confident 100% in what they're finding of what they're believing. That they can truly declare certain things as this is how it is. And I said, you sound a lot like Peter. There are many things in Paul's letters that are difficult to understand. And he said to me, yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. And I said, but you can't stop there. Peter directly follows that statement with, The the hard-to-understand things which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And at that moment, the professor just said, I'm not talking to you.
Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So, with respect to Keith's question, are we talking about what the original hearers or even the original author knew or understood or or what we can understand? And what I am talking about is what someone who has encountered Christ and had their eyes open can understand. Now, we're going to talk, uh, I think even next week, about what we mean by Scripture's clarity. That Scripture is clear. And I think it's very important to think about that because not everything is clear in the same way. And, but, What I'm getting at is that Scripture assumes that those interpreting the book can actually know what it says at some level, that communication actually works. And that if you don't heed what Paul says, even if it's difficult to understand, you are placed in a camp of ignorant and unstable who are bringing about your own destruction. The word is a lamp, meaning that as we go into this book, we can be confident that God can guide us in a unified way down the same path. I have a quick question. You mentioned the importance of context and you mentioned genre. And if you look at Genesis 1, uh, you know, some would say that's poetry, some would say it's history, some would say, you know, it's metaphor. How do you deal with, and you're going to cover this later, I'm sure, but how do you deal with the confusion as to what genre or what context you're looking at when you try to interpret? That's great. So the question is from John, what, what do we do when there's godly men and women, godly men and women, conservative godly men and women who are actually looking at the same book we are and they're, they're wrestling And disagreeing about things like genre and context. Take, for example, Genesis 1. We have to be able to step back and recognize how much, even in the midst of that setting, how much we can agree on. And how much what we can agree on matters and helps helps at least... um, helps us live in a cordial context over the other matters we can't agree on. That God created. That there's a historical Adam and Eve. That He did so with sovereignty, order, wisdom. And that He was able to declare value. That regardless of how you understand the chronology relating to science and what happened, those that are approaching the Word as the Word of God, recognize that everything in reality hinges on a God who actually was the starter. And if we recognize that that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, then all of a sudden, and and that He went to the cross on our behalf, and that cross is a a level, level playing field for everyone who's identified with Him. No one higher up, right? We're all 
equally in desperate need, then it, it gives us a level of what I would call epistemological humility. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. And in our quest for knowing, convinced that we can know, we still have a level of reasonable humility. A humility that is not saying, I can't know something, but recognizing that truth is greater than me. That I'm not the arbiter of that truth, but the truth has entered into this world and captured me. And that is slowly, increasingly, though not in whole, disclosing itself to me. That's humility when it comes to our pursuit of knowledge. And yet, convinced, because of Scripture's own testimony, that we can know, and yet, I don't believe in this life perfectly. But the fact is that we can, indeed, we must know. Our own salvation hinges on it, and God entered in in a way to communicate in such a way that we can know certain things rightly. And the Bible assumes it. And where we draw the line, well, is this one of those things that, I mean, I'm confident that I'm correct, John, and you're just wrong. Well, you used the example of literal Adam and Eve, and some people would say, no, that's a metaphor. I know they would. And, and so what is the benchmark for determining such things? I would say it is this book, and then we weigh out arguments, and we talk about reality. Like, did Jesus come to answer the problem of a metaphor or come to answer the problem of a reality? Is Jesus compared to a literary fiction named Adam or is he compared to a historical person named Adam? And we begin to wrestle with, in the same way that we would wrestle with any other truth claim that is being made out there in the world, We, we begin to compare worldviews, and we begin to compare truth claims, but this is the arbiter that is what we're constantly going back to. And a false belief can be logical. All it takes is one improper presupposition, but if, regardless of whether the, the, the um, proposition is true or false, it can be a false pr- proposition, but in the flow of the argument, the argument can be absolutely logical. And so what's at stake is evaluating each proposition in, the, in the, uh, every truth claim that's being made and weighing it up against the book. And we've got Baptists and Presbyterians that have different views on baptism and And I think I'm right. And I have good reasons why. But I could bring in a handful of brothers who could stand up here and clarify for you why they think it's necessary to baptize an infant. And I bet many of you would leave, huh, never thought about that before. But the mere fact that we can't know perfectly and therefore, within the community, we have disagreements about certain matters. Doesn't mean that we can't know and know truly. And all those within the 
authentic Christian faith have certain convictions about clarity that God has made enough known to distinguish the way from what is not the way, the truth from what is not the truth. And Jesus is at the center of that. So the task of biblical interpretation is not for wimps. Here's what Paul says, Think over, Timothy, what I say to you, and God will give you understanding in everything. Think over. This is not just, it's me and God. Me, God, and the Holy Spirit, and I enter into this book, and I, I just read. I read Judas. Where would it be? Yeah, oh, right up here. Judas went and hung himself. Whoa, that's painful. Then I jump in. Go now, do likewise. <laughs> and and I, I can approach such reading and have it change me, have it impact me, have it affect my living, and yet it's baseless because it's not the Word of God. And, but, but determining that Word of God is significantly significantly going to be impacted by think over, think over, wrestle with, within context, with the words, with the structures, with the whole Bible in mind, wanting to make sure that everything is tied together, interconnected. And if at some point I find my own understanding of how everything fits together, not working, um, I need to be willing to conform myself to the book. And Pastor Jason, I just read one of his articles this last week, refreshed myself on it, because we had our students read it. And he opened up his article. It was on the Christian and Old Testament law. And he talked about how he, he, he recalled uh, Procrustius and the Procrustean bed. And I don't even know if I ever read it before. But, um, and so I'm probably going to say it wrong because I, I, I haven't gone back and looked at the original source. Anyway, there's this, this, this king, is that right? Anybody? No? This king, I think, named Procrustius. And um, I should have looked better before I pulled up this illustration. Anyway, so there was this bed, and he would bring in his people, and um, if they were too long, he'd cut off their legs. If they were too short, he would stretch them out so that they could fit, so that they could fit the bed. And, and Pastor Jason simply made the illustration that Many of us approach the Bible that way with our systems. So that our system is the bed, and that when the Bible doesn't fit, we just stretch it out to fit our system, or we cut off those verses that we really don't want to listen to. And what we need is to be able to approach the Scripture with the bed being the Bible itself, and allowing our system to get a little shorter or get a little stretched out based on what the text says. That that's the measure upon which we are weighing things out. Think over what I say. God will give you understanding. It's going to take work, often work. I've quoted this from Luther before when he was reading the book of Ecclesiastes 
And he wrote down, O Solomon, your words make no sense to me, but I will overcome. (laughs) We need to wrestle like that. Number three, so important. If it is God's Word and God's Word is knowable, we need to recognize that I am not God. I am not the center of this universe. And if He has spoken, my life needs to be molded in conformity to Him and what He's saying. That is, biblical interpretation requires that we respond appropriately to this book. All Scripture, and I'll just say for Timothy whom Paul was writing to, the, various pre- the very previous verse says, Oh, Timothy, you were raised up on the sacred writings. His mom, Lois, his grandma, Eunice, were both Jews, according to Acts 16.1. So what are the sacred writings that Timothy, with Jewish grandma, Jewish mother, what sacred writings is he growing up with? Old Testament. Paul's writing the New Testament as he speaks. Oh, Timothy, you grew up in a day when the New Testament was not all over the map, but you grew up with the sacred writings that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Old Testament is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It demands an appropriate response. Pastor John, years ago, came up with this acronym that I've taught with, To my students, I don't know if Janelle heard it, whoever, were either of you in my uh, Christian discipleship, um, what was it called, biblical personal responsibility, biblical worldview personal responsibility course, were either of you in that? Okay, you missed that one. So, but I, I would use this in the classroom, oh God, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Psalm 119.36 Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Incline my heart. Get it in the right place, God. And then move me to have opened eyes that I may encounter what you want me to encounter. Psalm 119.18 Teach me your ways, O Lord. Unite my heart to fear your name. I-O-U-S. I-O-U-S. Unite my heart to fear your name. Once you have inclined my heart to your testimonies and you've opened my eyes to behold the beauties of your word, then, Lord, unite my heart. May it not be a divided heart. Unite my heart to fear your name. And then, Father, move me all all the way to the point of satisfy me this morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad all my days. I pray this in the morning when I open up the book. Because I know this isn't supposed to be just dead reading. This is supposed to be encounter. And an encounter with the living God is supposed to change us. If you live in the light, you're going to have a suntan. It happens. It's natural. 
You're supposed to be impacted so that others can tell. Now, if you come in next week with a suntan, you've either been on vacation or been hanging out somewhere that is a little weird in 26 below. But incline my heart, open my eyes, unite my heart, and satisfy us this morning. Pray that, I-O-U-S, when you go to enter the time in the Word and see what God can do. Because encountering the Word demands that we respond appropriately. And the fifth presupposition that, that I just enter into these next 12 weeks with is this, that biblical interpretation that culminates in application demands God-dependence. We can't make our hearts change. Deuteronomy 29.4, Israel, you've seen all that I did to the Egyptians, but God has not given you a heart to know, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. Israel was ignorant, blind, and deaf. They did not see the king in his beauty. They did not hear the glorious gift of guidelines that he supplied. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. And ultimately it was because God didn't give it. It takes a gift of grace to see our lives change. We can resist, resist, resist the devil. Sorry, resist the Holy Spirit. We'll keep resisting until God enters in and overcomes our resistance. So that in the end, we say, thanks be to God, you obeyed the form of teaching to which you were given over. Romans 6.17 You were given over, divine passive. God gave them over to to sexual immorality in Romans 1. He gave them over to a debased mind. And now, in Romans 6.17, those who are in Christ have been given over to obedience. And what do we say? Thanks be to God. Let him who speaks, speak as if speaking the very oracles of God. Let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies, so that in all things Christ may be praised. 1 Peter 4.11 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, For they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 We need God. So as you enter in, why are we praying at the beginning of of our Bible time? Incline my heart, open my eyes, unite my heart, satisfy me, because he's the only one who can do it. Why do we pray for our neighbors to get saved? Because he's the only one who can overcome such resistance. Why do we pray for for sustaining grace in the midst of suffering? Because he's the only one who can give it. And he will. For he's a God, he's a God who does not withhold good things from his children. He doesn't give serpents to his kids when they ask for bread. Their minds were hardened. Most of the Jews, Paul says, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. 
But if you are in Jesus, you have new eyes for reading the Scripture. You've got a lens upon through which to read it and to see things that you never saw before in such a way that when you encounter it, you begin to see lust and bitterness and hatred and anger and despondency, proneness to frustration, proneness to laziness. Just You begin to see yourself overcoming it. Because by one sacrifice, He has made perfect those who are being sanctified. He's he's making us more like Him, more into His image, and it's going to happen because we encounter Him in this book through God-dependence. So let me pray. I'm going to just do one more thing. It'll be short right after I'm done praying. But let me just pray and ask God that he would help us in these weeks. Dear Lord, we come hungry and you've got a full kitchen. And we're asking not only that you would feed us a banquet, but that you would take us in and show us how to make it. That we might be able to find our own souls satisfied and also be able to help others. Let us tremble at your word, convinced that it is your word. Let us be certain that we can know things and that you want to communicate And you've done so in a way that we can understand. So so let us stick around long enough to know. And may it change us. May you help us. Thank you that it's progressively that you show us more and more our sin. You don't just pile it on all at once. Oh, that would be so overwhelming. But you keep working us over. And you don't leave us and you remain for us 100% in Christ. Lord, let us be dependent on you, surrendered to your goodness, your purposes, and let us receive what you have for us and help us help us keep believing. Prove your worth to us through your book and awaken faith through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So on your paper, I give you ten reasons. I didn't anticipate going through them. Ten reasons why I think it's important that I actually wrote a book for Christians on how to understand and apply the Old Testament. Ten reasons. If you want to see them unpacked, you can read my first chapter. What I want to do for closing here is this. I just want to overview where we're heading. And the process I summarize as tokma. Tokma, text, observation, context, meaning, application. Text, observation, context, meaning, application. It's the first three, text, observation, context, that we're doing exegesis, and it's the last two, meaning and application, that we're doing theology. So when we're asking questions about the text, what we're asking ourselves is, what exactly is the makeup of this passage? Things like, what genre is it? Is it prophecy or is it law? Is it a prayer? 
What are the boundaries of this passage? If I'm supposed, to, if I actually get asked to lead a Bible study, and I've got to find a place to start and a place to end, how do I know where to do it? Literary units. Text criticism. This doesn't mean being critical about the text. It means critical in the sense of evaluation. And we're just going to take a week to learn about and celebrate that God's given us men and women who can evaluate where the scribes got it wrong. Not where the Bible was wrong, but where the copyists got it wrong. Creating variant readings in the manuscript tradition. And trying to understand, why do we think this is the Word of God and not something else? Translation. Just celebrating that there's people like Chris Tachik, like the Bluets, doing work in Bible translation. And how to think about, well, what exactly is the difference between the ESV and the NIV, and does it really matter? Observation. How is the passage communicated? Not how is it made up, but... but How exactly does it come to me? And we're looking here at grammar, clause level, text level, argument tracing, trying to understand that Moses actually talked with logic, just like Paul does in Romans. And we can follow his flow of thought through his sermons. And then word studies, concept studies, Context, where does it fit? Historical, literary. We'll unpack both of those. Meaning. We just bring it together. So so what's the main point? What does it mean for me? And we're going to see this brought together in two areas, biblical theology and systematic theology. And then, what's the lasting payoff? Why does the passage matter? practical theology. So that's where we're headed the next 12 weeks. I hope you come back. Bring your questions. Every week we're going to try to be in the text, not just talking about concepts, but actually working and seeing how it works um, with our Bibles open. So that's where we're headed. I look forward to it. I hope you come back. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.